0: This message was recorded live at the Ark Church in Conroe, Texas. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, it's great to be back in the Republic. I serve as a missionary among the heathen. We live in Georgia. They are grieving. Did you... Uh, I, I don't really follow college, but I don't have a favorite team. My, my two favorite teams are whoever's playing Georgia and whoever's playing Oklahoma. Uh, Apart from that, I I don't really have a favorite team. Saw this guy on the internet last night and he said, I kept saying for a year, Georgia should be one of the, playing with the big four. He said, okay, I was wrong. (laughs) Well, it's great to be here. I love this church. I love coming back here. It's so gracious of your pastor to say that you're glad to have me back, but I'm glad to be back. I love what's happening. I love the growth, the spirit of grace and humility that I find here, and it's, it's a privilege. This is the new book. Uh, it's called Courage to be Healed. It deals with inner healing, emotional healing. I'm going to be speaking on that this morning. I hope that you will uh, go out to the lobby when the service is over and avail yourself of these books. This book has taken off faster than any book that that I've ever written. It's selling like crazy. And we realized why people don't buy one or two copies, they buy 10 or 15 because they think of other people they wanna share it with. So as a result of that, we've made a different arrangement. The books are supposed to be $20 each. What we say is the first one is $20 and after that buy as many as you want for $10 and take care of all your Christmas shopping at one place. And we're, we hope that you will. It um, it probably doesn't matter to you to hear this, but it's important to me to say it. I do not take one penny from any book I've ever written, ever. It all goes, royalties are paid straight from the publisher, straight to global servants, all speaking engagements, honorary love offerings, all of that. I'm on a salary and everything that I bring in goes 100% to global servants through the Foreign Missions Program, particularly our girls' homes in Asia and Africa. So I hope when the service is over, you'll go out there to the lobby and spend yourself into bankruptcy. (laughs) Take a second mortgage on your house. Spend the children's lunch money. Come on. If you have your Bibles, if you'll take those and turn, if you will, please, to Luke chapter 5. I just want to read beginning with verse 17. And it came to pass on a day as Jesus was teaching that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And behold, men brought in a bed a man which was taken with palsy. And they sought means to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. And when they could not find by what way they might bring him in, because of the multitude, they went up on the housetop and led him down through the tiling with his couch. If you see in KJV, it's couch, which, of course, it doesn't mean the sofa in your house. So it probably just means a bedroll or a blanket is it's what it means. Into the midst before Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto him, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answering said unto them, What reason ye in your hearts, whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Rise up and walk, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins. And here he spoke unto the sick of the palsy. I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy couch and go into thine house. And immediately he rose up before them, took up that whereon he lay and departed to his own house, glorifying God. Amen. I wonder if you have had the experience which I have had on several occasions and particularly with this passage in preparation for this book. If you'll notice the the cover of the book, if you saw the cover art, it's based on this story. Because it was in this story that I saw two things which I had never seen before. Have you had that experience where you find a passage, you're familiar with it, you know it. Maybe you've heard sermons on it or taught or preached on it yourself. And then suddenly you see something and you have the odd feeling that it was added. Somehow or another that people sneaked in your house and put it in the Bible where it hadn't been there before. I had that with this passage. Two things. The first is a simple word, the word them. I had preached on this passage, taught on it, written on it, and had read straight past the word them. And the power of God was present to heal them. But my whole life I had read it and the power of God was present to heal. But that's not what it says. It says the power of God was present to heal them. Who is them? The, the clientele in the room that day is more carefully analyzed, documented than any other place Jesus preaches in the New Testament. It is a room filled with the religious leadership of the nation of Israel. Scribes, Pharisees, doctors of the law. The place is packed with the religious intelligentsia, From Jerusalem and Judea and all of the Galilee, the whole nation, it's packed with them. And the power of God was present to heal them. But none of them got healed. Why not? Because they came into the room with their own agenda. Their agenda was to judge Jesus, to analyze Jesus, to critique him, maybe to trap him in his own words. As long as we operate on our own agendas, we cannot get in under the healing agenda of Christ. When we submit our agenda to his agenda, his agenda is that we can be made whole. The power of God was present for them to be healed, but none of them got healed. The only one that got healed wasn't even in the room. The second thing that I saw in the story, which I had never seen before, is a variable of healing and that variable Is courage. Now, I'm not going to be talking about physical healing this morning, and I don't deal with it in the book. I believe in physical healing. I pray with the sick. I've seen wonderful, wonderful physical healings. But it is my observation and my experience, 50 years of ministry and counseling, is my experience that many, many more people deal with emotional, with crippling emotional damage than deal with physical issues. And this book is about emotional damage, about healing of damaged emotions. And dealing with that, I believe that the number one variable is not faith, it's courage. I, uh, I was the associate pastor at a huge church in Atlanta, Georgia, many years ago, the Mount Paran Church of God. And there, on the grounds, we had a healing, uh, we had a counseling center. And therefore, because it was a counseling center in a major city, we had constantly people coming that had no connection to the church in order to receive counseling. So this lady came for counseling. She had never been to our church, had no connection. She just made a cold contact appointment for counseling. When she came in my office, she was so angry that she couldn't even talk plain. She was, actually, it was an amazing thing. I wish I had a video to show you. She came in my office spinning. She said, well... I guess you want to know why I'm here. I said, well, yes, ma'am, that's generally a good place to start. Why are you here? She said, I'll tell you why I'm here. Men, she said, I hate men. She said, I've just experienced my fifth divorce. Count them, five divorces, and all five men were drunks Alcoholics, she said. And she said, I now hate men. Men are swine. They're just drunken pigs. I'm sitting there thinking, lady, you've only been in my office five minutes. I feel like I could use a drink. (laughs) If... If you are at odds with everybody in your extended family, at some point or another, it needs to dawn on you that amidst all the variables in the story, you are the only constant. The problem is, it takes courage. Can I use this word in this sophisticated, urbane environment? It takes guts to look in the mirror and say I'm tired of blaming my sister or my father-in-law or my parents or my grandparents or the Democrats. The issue in this story is me. (laughs) Now that takes courage. Once you face that, once you face who you are in the story, then the healing process can begin. I believe that after 50 years of doing this, that you can take all the toxic rivers that flow out of people's lives and across the lives around them. Do you you, you know somebody that they ruin every Thanksgiving? They they, they just bring a level of toxicity into every room they enter. They're toxic in the staff. They're toxic in their office. They're just toxic. And and you say to yourself, "Where, where does this come from? I believe basically you could take all of the toxic rivers that are known to humanity and they fall under five categories. I'm going to put a list up on the screen now of the five major toxic rivers. I just want to leave it for a moment. There may be a vast multiplicity of tributaries that flow out of these. But in general, all the toxic rivers flow out of these. Each, now, just leave that for a moment and watch this. Each of those toxic rivers flows out of a dominion, a, a, a power base, if you will. You remember in the book of Ezekiel, it talks about the river of life that flows out from under the altar of life. I believe each of these toxic rivers flows out of a, a dominion, a strength, a, a stronghold, if you will. I use the word throne, a throne of power that gives these toxic rivers their, their level of toxicity, and here are those. We'll put those up now. Here are the thrones coming right now, quickly. There they are, and they have majestically appeared. So you see the throne of shame flows from deception, unforgiveness, from an inflated sense of justice, of personally administered judgment, rejection, Flows out of doubt about the character and nature of God. Condemnation, this one will surprise you. Idolatry, fear flows from pain. Now, each of those then empowers the, the, or gives strength or toxicity to the river itself. I'll take that down now. and Let me just give you an example. Let's take the, the toxic river of shame. It is one of the most crippling of all emotional toxins. Shame, it's unfortunate that in some of the modern translations, the early passage in Genesis, which deals with Adam and Eve's nakedness, translates the word shame, embarrassment. And the man and the woman were naked and they were not, it says in KJV, ashamed. Some contemporary translations translated in very effete way, embarrassed. Embarrassed is what you feel when you drop your spaghetti in your lap. Shame is a deep emotional wound. Now, where does that shame flow out that so cripples us emotionally? So here is a a big-shot executive at the peak of his game whose toxicity has now on the verge of destroying his marriage of many years. His company, his employees are sick of him, and he begins to engage in reckless sexual behavior. He now comes, because he has to, for counseling and the process is extremely painful. It becomes with anger, resistance, resentment. Finally, we get closer and closer to the moment where something is there. And finally, it erupts with volcanic force. When he was 14, a 14-year-old is a little boy. A 14-year-old is a child. He was brutally and violently raped not inappropriately fondled, he was raped. And that rape, the power, the toxicity of that rape flowed out of a deception, a lie or a set of lies. What is that lie? Only a woman can be raped. That 14-year-old boy says to himself, or the lie comes to him, only a woman can be raped. So therefore, if he admits that he was raped, it threatens his whole sense of identity. So he suppresses it, he represses it. Listen to this. The power of denial is greater than you can imagine. We can actually deny something out of existence. It goes up in smoke. The problem is the beast is under the floorboards. It's always there lurking, snarling, growling under the floorboards of his life. So he piles stuff on the floor to keep the beast under there. So he never has to deal with it. Success in athletics, sexual prowess, business, all of those things proving his masculinity. But his masculinity becomes more and more toxic until finally we begin to prowl back through that, pull up the floorboards and that rape erupts and, and it erupt horrible to watch. He acted like his skin was being peeled off. What he could not deal with was the word itself. He began to talk about, since that happened, since those people did that, since I was in that time, all of that. And I kept pressing, what about the word? What about what happened? Finally, angry, furious. He says, rape, why do I have to say the word? What's so important about that? I said, because the therapy that tears down a lie, we know what it is in scripture. Now I'm gonna put that grid back up and add another category. What is the therapy that tears down deception? You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Did you know that that is actually carved into the wall of the lobby of the Central Intelligence Agency? You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I'm not not saying anybody in that building believes that. I'm just saying it's on the wall. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So as he is able to admit the truth of what happened to him, now the deception, the lie, can be torn down. The shame is there, yes, but the shame now can be visited where it belongs. The shame is on the violator, not on the victim. So now he is able to find healing. And what is it that God wants to bring? Watch this next category. One of the reasons people don't want to go into therapy is because they think therapy is the rest of their lives. But here is the goal. This is what it looks like. That wants to bring these things in. So shame, once deception is torn down by truth, what it brings out of that life is integration. Here's a verse of scripture that we quote all the time. All things work together for good to them that love God and are the called according to his purpose. We say it, but do we really believe it? All things has to mean all things or it doesn't mean anything. So it means that I can bring all things, God can bring all things, everything, good things, bad things, horrible things into my life in wholeness. He can integrate them. It doesn't mean That passage of scripture, some people take it to mean all things are good or God can make all things good. That is not what it says. It says God will make all things into goodness, even bad things, God can make them good so that if it brings them in, my life becomes integrated. I can embrace all the aspects of my life, even those things that have wounded me and God brings out of that integration. If my life is not integrated, it begins to disintegrate. Now, I'm not going to deal with all of those, but let me just give you a couple of them if I can't, if I could. If you want to really understand them, of course, you have to buy the book. <laughs> but rejection flows out of doubt of who the character and nature of God is. And what heals doubt about the character of God is trust in his nature. Have you known people that are are dwelling in the toxicity of rejection, they actually will act in a way to force you to reject them so that it reinforces, so they can say to God and to the entire universe, you see there, you see there, I'm rejected yet again. And what brings that? It brings into a level of acceptance. Ephesians chapter one, you are accepted in the beloved. I want to deal with condemnation just briefly because this is a very, confusing one to people. Condemnation, unforgiveness, is toward others. And that flows out of a a throne of of judging others, a level of justice that I, I have justice over them. But condemnation is toward me. We'll take the screen down now. Condemnation, have you ever heard people say this? And if you've ever said it, I know you'll never say it again, but here it is. I know that God has forgiven me, but I cannot forgive myself. Now that's condemnation. Where does that come from? What's the throne that that rests on? It actually may surprise you. It's idolatry. The worst kind of idolatry of all. It removes God from his throne of justice, and I place myself in God's place. I now judge my own life. I've removed God. I place myself on God's throne, and I judge my own life. God says, there is therefore now no condemnation, and I say, oh, yes, there is. What is the therapy for that? What is the the therapy? It's worship. I'm not talking about singing in church. That is worship. But worship is restoring God to his rightful place, the throne in our lives, and me and every other thing being pulled down. Because now I see who God is and I have to accept God's judgment on my life. So what is the therapy for that? I know God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. It's actually harsh. Here it is. Are you ready? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? The righteous, omnipotent judge of the universe says there is no condemnation. And you say, I know better than you do. That sets us free. And then there is pain, which is the throne out of which fear. Fear is a crippling, toxic emotion. Very crippling. It, it hinders us, but it flows from the throne of pain. Either pain in the past, something that happened to us, something that happened to a child, to us as, as a child, something. We spend our lives trying to insulate ourselves from the repetition of that pain, which causes us to shrink our lives so that the possibility of anything accessing me painfully can be carved away. So it causes me to be insulated, and that causes me to be isolated. Sometimes it's the fear of pain in the future. Not pain in the past, but imagined or suspected or feared pain. Anybody else ever had the unfortunate experience of taking a child to the doctor for an injection? And when the nurse walks in with that hypodermic needle, your perfectly sweet, darling little child goes demon-possessed. So it's screaming and everything. Why? It's because they create a narrative around that pain that this is going to be something horrible. They're going to stick it in my eye. My head will explode something. This will kill me. This is the worst thing I've ever imagined. Scientists tell us that we cannot actually remember the sensation of pain from the past. We remember that it hurt, but we can't actually remember the sensation of the pain itself. So sometimes we create a narrative around past pain. After I said that at a church very recently, about two weeks ago, a lady came up to me in the lobby where I was signing books and she said, you know, the only reason you say that you can't remember pain in the past is because you never had a baby. (laughs) She said, I remember exactly what that felt like. I said, now, ma'am, I bow before your femininity and I'm not arguing with you. I just want to ask you one question did you only have one baby? She said, no, I had three. I said, don't you see the, the last two are actually proof that you don't remember how the first one hurt. <laughs> so what, what tears that down? What tears that down? The problem is we try to create a pain-free environment. So I'm gonna put the grid back up and I want you to look at this. What is the therapy that tears down fear? We know what it is. This is a biblically prescribed therapy. Perfect love casteth out all fear. So a business executive, uh, I was the pastor of a huge church in Orlando, and a business executive said his elderly mother was suffering from agoraphobia. Agora from the Latin word for the marketplace. Fear of being outside or with crowds or something like that. She finally, her life shrank. She couldn't even go out of her own house. Her grown children had to bring her groceries and everything else. So I had to do the counseling by going to her house. So I began by trying to convince her that nothing would happen to her in her daughter's car, that she could go for a ride in her daughter's car. Nothing would happen to her at the shopping mall. Nothing, all of these things, nothing will happen to you there. It's her safety elsewhere. I didn't make a dent. And so I decided to reverse field. I began telling her all the bad things that could happen to her in her house. I said, Ma'am, you, you haven't driven through this neighborhood in a while. You've been in your house. I said, This is not a nice neighborhood. I said, In fact, I was a little bit scared here. She said, What? I said, Well, yes, yeah, it's scary. I said, Anybody could break in your house, kill you, cut your head off. She said, Dr. Utland, are you trying to help? She said, this does not feel like help to me. Because what I wanted to convince her was there's no pain-free place. That is not even a valid biblical goal. That's not a biblical promise. God never promised you a pain-free life. What he promised was not that you would never walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He promised he would be with you in the valley of the shadow of death. So what we began to deal with was her house. Is Jesus in the house with you? And from that, we extrapolated outward to one place and then another and then another. I'll never forget the wonderful moment when that businessman, her son called me from her driveway on his cell phone. He was weeping. He said, I just pulled up in front of my mother's house and guess what I'm seeing? My mother is standing in the front yard, watering the flowers. Because she learned there is no promise of a pain-free moment. There's the promise of Christ in the pain. Now, let me leave that grid and all of that and bring this toward a conclusion. Why do people, why don't people find the courage to go to counseling or to go to someone and get help and move forward with Jesus on these things? One reason is because we think that salvation does everything that that we ever need in our lives. Salvation is in, indispensable. You have to get saved. There's no way to begin the journey without salvation. But salvation does what it does. If salvation did everything, then why are there Baptists that are absolutely toxic? What about the baptism with the Holy Spirit? The baptism of the Holy Spirit does what it does. Thank God for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But if it did everything, then why are there Pentecostals that are as mean as one-eyed rattlesnakes? The issue is we keep going back to those places hoping to get saved her and saved her and saved her and baptized her and more baptized and more baptized. But we're not dealing with what's really wrong inside. We're not dealing with that throne of toxicity. Second thing is we may not be sure that counseling is of God. You ever hear these angry Pentecostal evangelists on TV railing on counseling psycho babble it's not from God you ever hear that I always think the same thing you need counseling (laughs) a third objection and this is how I want to end is that some people say yes well Jesus never did inner healing well yes he did what about the story of the man lowered through the rooftop That's a perfect example of inner healing. Everybody was concerned with the physical infirmity of this man. But the first thing Jesus said is not rise and walk. The first thing he said is, your sins are forgiven. He knew that that man was dealing with condemnation. And he dealt with the inner wound of condemnation before he dealt with the physical infirmity. But there's a better example, and I'll give you this one. John chapter 21. After the crucifixion, the disciples are shattered. They are damaged emotionally. The proof of that is that one of their number so filled with condemnation has hanged himself. Peter, who was supposed to be the big guy, the leader in the whole group, has failed and failed publicly. His shame is public. He denied Jesus three times, the third time with a curse, and everybody knows it. His shame is public. Peter says, I'm going back to Galilee and I'm returning to fishing. The others say, we're coming with you. They go out in the same boat where they met Jesus. The same nets on the same lake. They fish all night and they catch nothing. The next morning, there's a man on the shore and he says, have you you caught anything? They say, no, he says, cast the net on the right side. Just exactly what happened in the moment that they were called, he recreates the scene, takes them back in their memories, Cast your net on the right side. They pull the nets up. It's bulging with fish. And John, he's the intellectual and meditational contemplative guy. Peter's all brass and boldness. John, not Peter. John says, that's Jesus. And Peter does the most astonishing thing. He jumps in the lake. Don't you know the other disciples said, well, they're rowing the boat to shore. Peter goes ahead of them. Why? Because he knows he's going to get a tongue lashing and he doesn't want his friends to watch. He knows what Jesus is going to say. You craven, gutless little rat. I know you would betrayed me. I know you denied me three times. Oh, no, Lord, I'll never do it. Yes, you did. And I heard you. So just have a seat over there on a rock. The others get breakfast. As Peter comes forward... It says Jesus is seated at a charcoal fire. Peter comes forward, extends his hands over that charcoal fire, and looks into the eyes of Jesus. There are only two places in the entire New Testament where a charcoal fire is mentioned. One is here on the shore of Galilee. The first is in Caiaphas' courtyard, the night that Peter betrayed Jesus, It says, he warmed his hands at a charcoal fire. And when he denied him the third time, the cock crew, and he looked into Jesus' eyes. Jesus recreates the scene of his failure and shame, not to destroy him, but to heal him. He takes him back. That's inner healing. Then he says, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Lord? I love you. Feed my lambs. Do you love me? I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. Why? Three times, I love you, I love you, I love you. I've heard preachers make a big deal of the fact that they're using two different verbs, agapeo and phileo, but that's Greek, and these two guys were not speaking Greek. Why does he say it three times? Do you know Jesus? Never heard of him. Do you love me? He takes him back and reminds him of the three betrayals so that he can heal him with love and grace. Then he says, now feed my sheep. In other words, he also restores him to leadership and ministry because when we suffer from condemnation, we feel disqualified. And Jesus says, I am the qualifier. That's inner healing. Well, let me close with this. I'm sort of like the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians. He said, finally, and wrote three more chapters, but (laughs) this is actually it. Some years ago, I came across a survey. Someone asked thousands and thousands of Americans, what do you most enjoy hearing someone else say to you? What's your favorite phrase to come out of another person's mouth? I guess number one. I guess number one of the top three. I bet you can too. If this phrase went out of the English language, the Hallmark Channel is going out of business. Do we know what it is? Say it out loud. I love you. Of course it is. I love you. Americans are addicted to it. I love you. You know what the second one was? This shocked me. I forgive you. We walk around with a load of condemnation and we don't know what to do with it. You know what I think you could do? Stand on a street corner in downtown Houston and just say to people as they walk by, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. I think people would turn around and say, thanks, man, I'll never do it again. (laughs) Because we don't know what to do with our condemnation. We can't get healed. You know what the third one was? This will kill you. The third most popular phrase. Supper's ready. (laughs) Isn't that funny? I was doing exactly what you're doing when all of a sudden I said, OMG. That's the whole law and the prophets. That's the entire gospel. That's the whole message. When a preacher stands behind the sacred table of Holy Communion, He speaks for God Almighty and he actually only has three things to say. I love you. I forgive you. Come and dine, the master calleth. Come and dine. Not everybody in the world wants you healed. But Jesus wants you healed. Amen? Amen. Will you bow your heads? Just bow your heads and close your eyes all over the house. I'm just going to pray a quick quick prayer for those who want it, for those who have the courage to say, Dr. Mark, will you please pray for me? Please pray. I'm tired of blaming everybody else in my life. Something is wrong. There's a toxicity in my life. I don't know where it came from. I, I want out of this. Will you pray for me? I don't know how I became like this. But will you pray for me? I need to be healed emotionally. If that's you, then you lift your hand up and take it right back down all over the house. Oh, so many, so many, so many. Wow, I'm so proud of you. I can't tell you how proud of you I am. That takes great courage to do that, great courage. It is easier for a spirit-filled Christian to admit cocaine addiction than to admit that they are toxic Human beings. Heavenly Father, you see these hands. You see our hearts, our lives, and our emotional damage. Save us and we shall be saved. Heal us and we shall be healed. Come, Holy Spirit. Lead us to places, people. Deal with us. Change us, oh God. We give you permission. In the mighty name, Jesus, the strong son of God. Amen, amen, and amen. God bless you, everyone, and God bless the ark. Thanks for listening to this message. For more about the Ark, visit thearkchurch.com.